listening to The Bloodsucking Feminist, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, bangs, feminism and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And this is episode 22, Franchise Bait or Dracula Untold. Dracula, boring, told, more like it. Dracula should have remained untold, am I right? <laughs> I mean, we've watched less read some boring things, like... The huge chunks of the historian that were boring, but the historian was massive. Dracula Untold isn't exactly long. I mean, it's a standard movie. The the percentage of boring to interesting is a lot higher than, say, the historian. I mean, the main problem here is that this didn't feel like a movie people wanted to make because they wanted to tell the origins of Dracula from a historical drama point of view. This is a movie that got made because Universal were like, you know, we have all of this incredible iconography from the Golden Age that really defines our studio in a way that nothing else does. Maybe we should do something with it, like try and start a Marvel franchise because that makes sense. Everyone else is doing it. And everyone else is continuing to do it for some reason because apparently we're also getting a Robin Hood epic universe. Who asked for that? <laughs> Robin Who else? No, I'm, I'm not even going to ask. It doesn't deserve that, does it? <laughs> Unless it's Robin Hood versus Dracula or something. <laughs> no, Robin Hood versus Varney the Vampire. Oh, <laughs> that would be, once, once again, that would be way too interesting. <laughs> And th- that's the problem. Nothing in this movie is remotely interesting. Interesting sort of shows up for filming a few times, but doesn't actually end up on screen. Interesting's role has been cut from the final film. That's no way to speak about Charles Dance. <laughs> we should explain what this movie is about, because it has a plot, apparently. Vlad the Impaler is back from impaling a whole bunch of Turks. Um, the Turks want his son... Blood the Impaler says no, proceeds to try and impale people. War starts. He goes and decides to become a vampire to save the day, becomes super Batman and (laughs) impales a whole lot of people. His wife dies. The end. Sequel beat. Oh, oh yes. And then there are reshoots where he's in modern times and meets her reincarnation Mina. There's a lot of reshoots in this. Like, they're, they're quite obvious. They're obvious in a way that, like, the Suicide Squad reshoots were obvious. Are they Fantastic Four-level well, level reshoots with different wigs? No, the, the wigs are better in here. So, you're not at that level. It's okay. It's not that embarrassing. Like, the movie is competently made, but it just, every beat of it is something that you completely expect. Oh, we're going to get the great older character actor as the head vampire slash Nick Fury character. Oh, we're going to get the childhood trauma that kind of justifies all of the stuff that your protagonist does, no matter how shitty. Oh, we're going to have a woman in the film nobly sacrifice herself because reasons. And she's a blonde ingenue. Yep. Oh, we're going to have those damn wiener kids everywhere. So this movie is... A whole lot of white people. Oh, it's a whole lot of white people. Basically, it follows, generally follows what we know of the real Vlad Tepes, um, or Vlad the Impaler. Um, I say it generally, actually misses out a lot of the really interesting stuff about him, but him being held hostage by the Ottoman Empire as a child, trained to be a soldier, being this you know, 
immense massacre of people through the preferred method of sticking them on pikes, that that's real. But there are certain things that it misses out that to me just feel like missed opportunities from a storytelling point of view. Like, the real Vlad wasn't the only one taken to the Ottoman Empire as a child, or stolen to the Ottoman Empire as a child. So was his brother, Radu. They were both held hostage after his um, his dad and her eldest brother were murdered by the regent governor of Hungary in the 1400s. And then his cousin, Vladislav, became the new prince of the Wallachia er- er- Empire. And it took you know, a couple decades for, for Vlad to get back in power, and then there was a struggle between him and his brother, with the um, the Ottomans taking the side of Radu. And then Vlad massacred everyone. All the Turks, all the Bulgarians, a huge chunk of his own people, massacred. Like, if you could put on a stake, you got put on a stake. <laughs> but, you know, th- there was a huge uh, power struggle between these two that went on for a really long time to the point where he was actually imprisoned for about a decade and then was murdered a couple years after his release and then after that you see the story spread across particularly to germany um german-speaking territories all of these kind of mythic levels of legend in books about the you know the sadism of vlad the impaler which are generally true, but it ends up building into what we would know as the Dracula myth now. It's kind of setting the foundations for what Bram Stoker would write his pseudo-fanfiction about. Um, but it's, he was a real person, and his impact on Romania to this day is still a pretty divisive issue amongst Romanians. And he's, you, know, you have this, char- this person who was a very real person who attracts a huge amount of tourists to Romania and the Transylvania area, but is also someone who people have to kind of discuss, was he really a good guy for us? Is he really the kind of guy that we want representing Romania? You know, his fight for independence of the Romanian territories was something that a lot of people to this day consider a very important noble act. They consider him a hugely important historical personality, but also he murdered thousands of people. (laughs) So you have all of that, and that's really fascinating and presents a lot of you know, really crucial ethical conundrums for storytelling even before you add all the vampire stuff. And there's no reason that you can't combine those two. But everything we have here is like, it's like ticking off of boxes for the Hollywoodization of history and culture and uh, folklore. To give you an idea of just how little care was sort of taken by it, this is, seems to be based around the idea of his first wife, the unnamed first wife, which in the film they have du- who in the film they have dubbed Morena, and their son. But the son doesn't share a name with any of Vlad's actual children. There's like no reason to change the name of any of his kids. It's just let's just come up with our own name. Yeah, I get the feeling that that was a case of we don't know how to pronounce any of these names. But this also contributes to a huge problem with the movie, which is this is a huge, this is a huge cultural whitewash, and not just not just racial whitewash, but cultural as well, um, because pretty much everyone in this movie is not just white, but like wasp white. The king of the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Mehmed II, is played by Dominic Cooper. And terrible brown face, like brown face is terrible, and then just the 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 makeup was just like you could see bits were missing like his hands were still pale white it was like the reverse of the cullens in twilight it was like donald fucking trump 
Dominic Cooper's done this. He was in this movie called The Devil's Double, where he played the guy who was basically the um, double of one of the Hussein children of Saddam Hussein. Like, Dominic Cooper isn't from that region of the world. I think it's just because he's dark-haired and Hollywood thinks, well, he's a dark-haired white guy. He could be ethnic. We don't have to pay for the hair dye. That's the main concern, yes. So... It's not just that, but you know, this is a story that is supposed to be set in Transylvania, that is supposed to be about this, you know, important historical figure, but there's nothing there's no real markers of what would now be known as, you know, Romanian culture, Romanian folklore, Romanian you know, the the people. Um in an original version of this movie, before they were cut out, they had someone playing Baba Yaga, who's a you know, really iconic character in Slavic folklore. She was cut. Because, you know, you can only have one woman in this movie, apparently. Yeah, the same goes for the Ottomans. There's a few random non-white guys, not in brown face. One of them is Ben Kingsley's son. One of the major assassins in the Ottoman army is called Bright Eyes, played by an Icelandic uh, dude. So, white, white, white who, the story apparently goes, he was kidnapped and taken as a slave by the Ottomans and raised to become an assassin. Why you need a random Icelandic assassin in the Ottomans and there's no, seems to be no reason for it? I don't know. He's not even that, like, a crucial character. He's just random assassin dude with a big lady thing. The opening begins with Vlad's son, who is retelling the story of his father. And you can sort of imagine any story by his son would be a little bit biased because son, my father did all this to save me, blah, blah, blah. And it talks about the the taking of all the Romanian children by the Sultan. And the thing I noticed is in the stylized opening credits, the children are all very white and blonde. And the men, the grown men in the shadows are all quite dark. I'm like, well, so much for subtlety. The mean brown people are going to take your children, your perfect white little children. Man, isn't that just a kick in the fucking face? You can tell that this movie was basically like a series of charts that were being ticked off by people who had no real idea of what they were ticking off, except for, well, maybe we can turn this into a franchise and we can add elements of history and that will make it sound smart. Yeah, so if you really want to know why everything, everyone looks so freaking white, filming took place in Northern Ireland. <laughs> it's so white, it's blinding. You think, considering all the films that get done in, like, that get filmed in Hungary and everything like that, they could actually film a... Yeah. <laughs> uh... It's actually pretty common to go to Romania and Hungary and film your movie, and Bulgaria too, because there's really good tax incentives to film there. I'm guessing Ireland offered them a really good deal, um, but, you know, I mean, it wasn't a massive budget movie. It's $70 million. It's still a pretty decent amount of money, but given that now, only three, you know, two and a half years later, the norm for a franchise is pretty much between about 140 to $180 million, this seems almost low budget. It doesn't look it. It looks fine. Stylistically, it's basically um, Zack Snyder fan fiction. 
there's an opening scene the bit where you described where, where the damn wiener kid is describing his dad's story and it's in this sort of slow motion and it's like that is 300 it's a guy trying to copy 300 on the cheap but try but not trying not to look like he's copying 300 on the cheap you know i'm totally not copying 300 no offense to Gary Shore and John Schwartzman, who are the director and cinematographer on this thing. It just doesn't look good. And then I looked up the other films of John Schwartzman, and he is the cinematographer on the next two Fifty Shades of Grey films. <laughs> ah, he did the film Rockula. Sure, why not? And he was the cinematographer for Jurassic World. Oh, that explains a lot. Armageddon and Pearl Harbor. Oh god, he's a Michael Bay man. That explains it. <laughs> Uh, that's the problem with the film is it doesn't really have any stylistic identity of its own it is the product of a studio who wants to follow in very specific footsteps which are the footsteps of building a franchise marvel's clearly what they're aiming for but they're stylistically going more with dc and the snyderverse with its you know crusty tissue paper laden hands everywhere like somebody got the uh dummy uh, the dum- a dummy book you know how to build a movie franchise and then really, really followed it. I mean, this is really before they kind of knew that they wanted to make it into a franchise. I mean, the reshoots came later, but it still feels like such a safe piece of storytelling. So we'll get into later what how this film works or does not work as a franchise starter, but just on its own, let's pretend that it was never intended for a franchise. And it doesn't really matter because it's not going to be the starter of that franchise anymore. But I think we need to talk about the character of Lad slash Dracula himself, who's played by Luke Evans. He's a Welsh actor. You will know him soon because, better because he is about to play Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, he's in the Hobbit movies as well. He's a very charming actor in the right role. He's a very talented man. It's just that here, I don't think he's given much direction beyond, okay, brood. <laughs> no one impales like Gaston. No one flails like Gaston. No one flails like Gaston. I will say, it's not Luke Evans' fault. He has been given this impossible task of one, he has to play a mass murdering warlord and play him as the sympathetic noble family man because the script dictates it, because there's no other way that people would want to follow this character, apparently. And then he has to look really silly at times. The va- the thing that was a big thing from the vampirism just is going for scary, but it just looked a little daft. They cut out anything that would make him super conflicting. Like, I would have no problem with him. Be- the idea of him being a devoted family type man, and also going out and killing a whole bunch of people because you know this is my family. I love my family. Screw the rest of you. But the film has no. The film has absolutely no intent of exploring that. Yeah, it's very explicit that the only people he killed were the and impaled were the Turks. And now he's come back and that's all behind him and he doesn't want to do that again. Which makes it sound like he had a bad hangover or something. The older vampire sort of calls him out on this. It's like, you, you killed a lot of people. You don't just get over that. And it's like, what did you feel? Nothing. Yes, that's a bad thing. You, as you mentioned, there's no real conflict as well, um, because they and also never mind that the conflict they set up is massively problematic because it's clearly noble, handsome white guy 
who is still a mass murdering warlord, but is going up against the true evil, which is the people dark, the brown people, or at least people painted to look brown. And also, like, I, I, it's not that the film set, I mean, it doesn't set up great, but his jump from, I need to save my kid to, well, let's become a vampire, is just really pretty sudden. <laughs> There's no second thought there. It's like, well, I gotta get you to be. Might as well. Yeah. It's like, okay, so the Ottomans are coming. Um, um, there's a thing up in the mountain that killed a whole bunch of Ottomans and my friends. I'm going to go check it out. And it turns out to be Charles Dance. Vampire Nick Fury. Vampire Tywin Lannister. No, Tywin Lannister wouldn't be this sloppy with his deal making. But still, you shouldn't even go near that for a deal. Just because. It's like, nope, that's not going to end well. It was apparently cut out of the movie, but this character, this random vampire in a cave in the mountains being cursed by someone else and unable to leave this cave and everything, unless somebody else comes and takes his place or takes his curse, uh, was originally Caligula, the Roman Emperor Caligula. That is immediately a whole lot more interesting than anything else in this movie, because I at least would like to know how um, Caligula ended up a vampire and in a random cave in Romania. There's got to be a story behind that. This is where I think a lot of it becomes reshoots because it does feel very shoehorned in in that aspect. I mean, poor Charles Dance, who's such a charming presence, really ma- you know, magnetic actor with a voice for the ages. And he's really given nothing to do here, but okay, I'll make you a vampire, but you've got to follow these really arbitrary rules, and if you fail, you basically have to become my vengeance partner, because reasons. Okay, I know in a movie about Dracula and Caligula, vengeance bros. <laughs> oh my god, is there a vampire horse? I don't know, I was just imagining the modern day version where they're driving around like an Impala. Okay, but Vampire Caligula has to be played by Malcolm McDowell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining like a Vampire Bros version of Supernatural where they're going to hunting down other things because reasons. Perhaps with less Lady Death. Always a good start. Well, you can't have her actually be a, you know, a well-written, rounded character or a person. That would be silly because, you know... I mean, what are we thinking? Women with their own motivations and goals and feelings? Beyond pants feelings for the attractive man? But suitably restrained pants feelings. Bless, I mean, poor Sarah Gadden, who's a really wonderful actress, and we've talked about her on the show before because she's in the Moth Diaries. As Lucy. She's gone from Lucy to Mina. But um, but she's almost like the kind of character you would read about on The Onion as the cliché female sacrifice for the man to get the work done in the film, you know? Cinnamon Bun realises shit gotta get done, sacrifice itself. And it's such bullshit. And also that scene is so clearly evoking the uh, the beginning of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola movie, when uh, Mina throws herself off the building. But with a really long epic fall. It's just <laughs> it's all like slow-mo and suddenly a different a song actually plays. Like the, the entire feeling of the soundtrack and score starts up. Like they've not had any song with lyrics or anything like that in the movie and then in this one sequence that one of them plays. 
And apart from that, the music's one of the few decent things about it because it's being done by, uh, what's his name? The guy who did Pacific Rim. Oh, the music's pretty decent. It's by Ramin, uh, Ramin Jawadi, who is also the guy that did the Game of Thrones music. Like, it's a talented guy, but also it's clear that the writing was like, so you know that movie, the, the music you do for Game of Thrones? Can you just, like, do that? But Romanian? But not too Romanian. Yeah, vaguely Romanian. It's almost like when you go for the public domain music for, like, vague, vaguely ethnic-sounding music. This is him just showing up and getting a paycheck as opposed to really coming up with because we know this guy can do some amazing stuff. Like, if you've listened to, say, Pacific Rim, you know that... You know that tune. It has its own identity. But this is just like, there is music in the background, and it doesn't suck. I wonder what the temp music was for this movie. The temp music is basically a practice where the director will put diff- other music to the film, well, to edit it to it, so that that's how the music will play. And then the, the composer has to come in and play the real, like actually make the score to go around it. But a lot of times, um, composers will be told to make music like the temp music. There's a really great video from Every Frame of Painting's Tony Zhao on this subject and how it leads to a lot of really generic sounding music. Because that's the problem, like, the music, like a lot of the movie, is just incredibly generic. And to give you an idea also how generic the music is, the trailer featured the um, Lord version of Everybody Wants to Rule rule the World, which, as you know, was in Hunger Games. It was used for an Assassin's Creed Unity trailer, uh, promotional videos for Total War, TV series Banished, How to Get Away with Murder, Homeland, The Royals... And then Dracula Untold. It's standard trailer song now, apparently. Just everything is like, well, what's popular? So now I've got the Pacific Rim tunes in my head. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. See? See, with the Pacific Rim one, it has its own real beat and identity to it, whereas this is like, okay, there's not. it's not quiet in the background i just want this movie to have some sort of identity because even the entire arc of dracula is it's basically a superhero arc it's batman no pun intended it's an origin story about super batman i mean pretty much you've got the dead family member you've got the noble sacrifice you've got the the misunderstood you know vigilante aspect of it and then at the end, you've just got him like the entire, oh my god, and then it does the thing that we really hate in Dracula adaptations, which is reincarnated Mina. And yet it's so half asked about it. Oh, it's pure reshoots. I mean, if somebody were to do the reincarnated wife thing for Dracula, and with an emphasis on how messed up it makes her feel, with the conflicting inner identities as, as everything gets awoken or the fact she is not interested in this guy who really is interested in her because of somebody else. But no, nobody ever does that. That's stupid. So anyway, bad film is bad and it should feel bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even bad, it's just dull. It's not good. Music is forgettable. It, it's boring, it's dull, um, it's a whole lot of white people and a whole lot of white people painted brown. And then it has like one woman who just has to be the noble sacrifice. And our villain protagonist isn't really a villain. 
No, that would be way too interesting. Um, I think we need to talk about the particular, well, the the vampirism of of Vlad slash Dracula itself, which is pretty standard in terms of what modern audiences expect from vampirism, but isn't really tied to the vampirism of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Sunlight is a big problem here. It is, you know, it's a killer in a way that it isn't in Dracula, which everyone keeps forgetting. It weakens him and he can't do as much shit, but it doesn't kill him outright. Silver is a problem. He can turn into bats, which is also in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He can turn into different animals, usually a wolf. Yeah, I like here that they turn that he turns into multiple bats, you know, conservation of mass and everything. But that is like reasonably cool moment of the film i say reasonably you know it, it's one of the better ideas in the film like there's a few people somebody seems to slip in the occasional decent idea it's just whoever handled it in the final production kind of messed it up you know someone goes like okay so what if he instead of turning into a bat he turned into lots of bats huh ah lots of bats but I'm sure that that, but I'm sure that that's been done in a number of adaptations before. Doesn't Van Helsing do that? I've certainly seen they just it. turn into giant bat creatures, don't right. they? Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I've seen it before. Yeah, it's oh god, it's in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I'm not proud of knowing that, but it is an interesting element. It's a logical idea. But one that's not as commonly done because we don't really get too many vampires that turn into bats nowadays. That's one thing that sort of seems to have been set aside in a lot of vampire stories. Because bats aren't sexy? Please tell me bats. <laughs> don't, nobody go out actually thinking bats are sexy. That's just are you kink shaming again, Catherine? I'm bat shaming. <laughs> oh, poor Bruce. He doesn't need that. Hey, he's a man that goes out in leather, punches a whole bunch of mentally ill people, and then has sex with a woman dressed as a cat, also in leather. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of websites that could have accommodated him on that front, but he was, you know, his parents did die pre-internet, so really, (laughs) he did what any self-respecting billionaire would do. And it's a thing that shows up in multiple other works, not just uh, Dracula Untold. It's not always the same thing, but this, the concept of having a reversal or not completing the change does appear in other works. Sometimes you just die without, you know, becoming immortal. Uh, that was one of the Vampire Diaries clauses, you know, if you've been turned or you've been given the thing, if you don't complete the transformation, by drinking human blood, it's game over. But there is a, a the idea of an out. Same with some places, you know, you kill the master vampire, everyone turns back into humans. There being out for people who are turning or nearly turning or just after the turning isn't uncommon. And the if you can resist the temptation is the standard clause. But it doesn't work here because one, foregone conclusion... Mm-hmm. 
You think they're really going to make a Dracula film where he doesn't turn into va- to a vampire permanently? No. Two, he has absolutely no struggle with it. You're like, oh, he. there's one bit where he's getting on with his wife and she's like, you know, all hot-blooded underneath him and he's like, oh, there goes my boner. I need to rethink this. But apart from that, he, he wipes out an entire military force and impales them and yet doesn't go... Uh, just a nibble. Once he resists his wife's pretty neck, there's no conflict for him. There's no struggle. And of course that is set up in a sex scene. It would be one thing if knowing it's a foregone conclusion that we see him struggle and we know he's failing and we know that there is no coming back. But in this case... He doesn't even do it out of his own choice. He's prompted by his dying wife to drink her blood. Exactly. And she's like, look, I'm dying anyway. Go out and become a badass and save our son. It would have been interesting if we'd had, instead of seeing him struggle, we'd actually seen him really desperately want to become a vampire. Like, you know, this is clearly a guy who likes power. They may write that, kind of, sort of euthanize that during the film with the whole, you know, well, yeah, he was a mass-murdering uh, warlord, but he's okay now. But it's clear that on some level he clearly craves power. And not just because it's for his people, but it's because he likes it. But we don't really... That's not explored. That would be too interesting. We know he makes this decision out of a selfish desire. Yes, it's the desire to protect his son and keep his son from being given over to the the Ottomans like he was, but this is protecting his son at the cost of every other person in his kingdom. Which, no wonder by the end of the film, they're kind of pissed off at him and the kid. And if they portrayed him as, you know, really, it's like, I can do so much more if he'd like, after his first battle, he's like, I don't want to give this up. I can take the fight all the way back to where they live. I can get rid of all of them. I don't have to, I can take them out by the thousand. He, he literally becomes a one-man army. He could have marched all the way into the heart of the Empire and slaughtered them all. And for a man who feels nothing, apart when he does kill many, many people and is an amazing fighter, why is there not that temptation? Even going by the, the corrupted hero idea, you know, no child of shall ever be taken by the Ottomans again because he will wipe out the Ottomans. There's not even that sort of fantasy seduction sequence. You know, the offering, I give you the power not just to protect your son, but to protect your kingdom and destroy your enemies. No one will ever be able to stand against you now and into eternity. No, it's just like, I'm going to, you know, kill them all. Hope they don't come back after three days because I'll be human by then. That's his plan. Borrow the power of vampire, kill them, get back to banging wife. Drink out of world's greatest dad mug. Well, it'll be a goblet, I feel. Uh, I will say that the whole, you know, if you turn in three days, you then have to basically be my, my vengeance partner. You know that that was pure um, rewrite. That was, you know, completely shoehorned in because it's like, shit, we need a sequel, which people will totally want to see where Dracula crosses over with, I don't know, Wolfman or whatever. Tom Cruise. (laughs) Yeah, we we will get to the Tom Cruise thing in a minute. 
Um, but that's what makes it so much more aggravating when we get to the end of the movie and it's present day and there's Mina, who is obviously Morena reincarnated, and then there's modern Vlad sort of watching her, and then uh, you get, what's his face? Well, does, does Vampire Nick Fury have a name? Or is he just, like, vampire? <laughs> like, prince? Master Vampire. Right. There's another aspect to the the deal. It's on the side of the Master Vampire, there's a very obvious clause that fits as opposed to the we'll become vengeance bros. It's the vampire Master Vampire couldn't leave the cave or whatever until he had someone to replace him. You know, he had to share his curse, find someone to agree to take on the curse. That's, again, a standard get-out-of-cave-free clause. <laughs> what? It is. He gets out of the cave. But it's just... I mean, that, I, I can't even complain by this point in time. The entire thing is just, you know, it, it's throwing the dice. It is just getting on with this really benign piece of storytelling. Yeah, see, that, that list standard storytelling, but standard clause in any of these sort of deals... You know, you made the deal with you made the deal with the devil. Now you've got to make have someone make the deal with you before you have any whatevers. And Vengeance Bros is the tacked on sequel bait. And frankly, considering how Dracula Untold is taking place, you know, prior to the Renaissance, as it opens in the Wikipedia entry, why is Master Vampire not Caligula? still hovering around following uh, Dracula when he's had all this time to brood with him. Once again, that would be too interesting. This is like, you know, I'm having too much fun exploring the world. I've got forever. I'll get back to him later. I mean, look at these iPhones. Look at this flappy bird game. That's so much more interesting than dealing with a whiny guy. <laughs> Just I'm sitting in the cave with the oh, it needs to get charged. Oh shit! The extension cord doesn't go this far up the cave. <laughs> just Angry Bird's like, no, no, I just got one more piggy to go. Or you just been sitting there playing Temple Run for about <laughs> five years, no stopping, <laughs> and then Dra and then Vlad the Impaler and his friends show up, and he loses his run, and that's why he kills kills them all. <laughs> But then, you know, this it's not just that he is, you know, this this weird kind of vampire hierarchy they've set up. It's also then, once um, Vlad slash Dracula has won at war, he has killed um, Dominic Cooper, he's staked him, he's drank his blood, and then a bunch of other vampires turn up and say, so your son is human? Like, we don't, we don't deal with that shit, you need to kill him now. So then it's not just that Dracula is you know, the vampire, it's that he's the good vampire, which I feel like was their way of trying to set him up as a reasonably sympathetic protagonist for the sequels that will never happen. Yeah, to make him the good guy to Master Vampire's explicit bag act. Because vampire, you know, Dracula's a hero, we've always loved that, haven't we? It's not even complex hero, where he's done bad things, but in this current situation, he's, he's the good guy because everybody's worse. Or his good guyness in whatever situation is purely selfish, you know? It, all the bad guys want to kill this person and maybe yada yada. Oh, by the way, the kid is um, Rick and Stark yeah, from Game that. of Thrones. So it's like, we need a kid who looks vaguely medieval. Get one of the Game of Thrones kids. 
But then you also have, you know, it's not just that Dracula is the good vampire. He then becomes the noble self-sacrificing vampire because he basically allows himself to burn up in order to uh, make sure the rest of the vampires around them, you know, die as well. Uh, but doesn't die in- properly because, you know, his um, mysterious um, sort of lackey, who's like his LeFou to his Gaston, <laughs> comes along and saves him. He's from Black Seals, that guy. His Romani lackey. Yeah, and I don't think he's Romani. I think he's American. Um, but he is in. Um, he's he's Charles Vane from Black Sails. Again, it's one of those things where, well, it's Dracula. He's not going to die right now, so. Yeah, it's not even like suspenseful storytelling, and it's not to say that we would, you know, that being predictable means that you can't be suspenseful. You know, you can do that. It's the whole reason that you know certain prequels work just doesn't work here at all because it's so clearly just you know pulling on the string to get to the end i'm running out of metaphors for what this film is it's dull some things are foregone conclusions and we want to see how everyone falls not every episode of survivor needs to be a blind side sometimes we know at the beginning who's going to go and we want to see how everyone sets it up to bring him down and how he doesn't know about it see swimming with sharks season seven um pearl islands and the voting out of rupert that's a highly specific reference i do not get he was the pirate guy he was there on his island adventure and everyone was plotting to get him out and he had no idea and he talks about how it's very much a case of look look at all the foreshadowing, look at all the hints that we are all getting to see and this guy doesn't. We know it's coming and he doesn't. And we get to watch him fall. But once again, that would be interesting. We don't get to watch Dracula fall. We don't get to watch him really struggle. We just get to watch him get superpowers. But that's the thing is this isn't even a genre movie in the sense of, you know, real horror or even sci-fi. It's a superhero movie. Actually, here's a quote from Gary Shore, the director. Uh, Anybody who's going to the film expecting a horror movie is going to be sorely disappointed. For me, it was telling a story. I was trying to tell a good drama that has action-adventure elements to it. Which I think was the the pitch that everyone who's tried to do some sort of universal reboot was given. Like Stephen Summers with both The Mummy and Van Helsing is the obvious example. And clearly what is going on with that new Mummy movie we're getting. Which I'm going to go see, but I'm not happy about it. No, I'm not really opposed to the idea of a vampire superhero movie. And I'm not talking about an Elseworlds where Bam- where Batman is a is a vampire. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off and watch Batman versus Dracula at some point, because why not? But it's not the right tone or genre type for this type of character. So taken an underworld type character and an action thing, gone straight into more superheroics rather than the dark action type leather stretchy stretchy <laughs> cat suit. I, I, I had to put it in there. Shut up. That would work, but not with Dracula. We, we remember we see him either as a dude who puts everybody on giant sticks or an old um, aging noble, possibly getting younger and sexier depending on what you want to actually do with him. But this is also just the main problem with this film, is it's an immense amount of wasted potential, because they don't really want to make a good movie, they want to make a springboard for a franchise. They went in with a mission to start a new Universal Monsters movie, 
wants this uh, franchise universe without any understanding of in the characters what makes the current franchises actually work and what they really wanted tone-wise or character-wise or creature-wise. As I said, somebody seems to be sneaking in semi-decent ideas, but they're not really being taken well or interestingly. Like, at the end of the thing, I, I did like the idea behind the, the final fight sequence with um, Mehmet and Dracula, where they're fighting on the coins and he's got bags of silver coins hanging everywhere to cut and drop on him. Somebody in there, even if it was just Mehmet, had an idea. Was it a good idea? Who knows? But there was an idea, and it creates at least a visually interesting moment, for, if only for a few seconds. Plus, they tie it back nicely with the original offering of silver to not come and take our children. Somebody was half awake when they did that. I don't know what they were doing for the rest of the film, but somebody tried. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's obvious attempts at trying from some people in here. I don't think anyone wanted to make a bad movie, but I just, I don't think they were given much objection to make a really good movie. So I think we need to discuss why this movie was made. Money, dear boy! <laughs> Rolling in the Benjamins. They weren't really, actually, the thing is, it wasn't even, a, you know, a failure. It, it grossed back three times its budget. It technically made a profit. It just, it wasn't a commercial, it wasn't a critical success, and it wasn't a film that people were like, oh man, I can't wait to see the next one. No one was rushing out for this. To give you an idea of what they were going with, when they announced this um, film back in, uh, well, a long time ago, they were originally set to release the film in 2011, and in 2010 they announced that Sam Worthington was in negotiations to play Vlad oh, the Impaler. Bless. Could you have gotten a less exciting actor? <laughs> that, in a nutshell, sums up what they were going with, you know? They wanted... Uh, they wanted a vampire, a supernatural, Universal Monsters Clash of the Titans. They wanted, you know, great special effects, some action, and possibly some naked ladies. I don't know. They weren't thinking about a good character actor or whatever. They just wanted a, a handsome young dude to kill people. Because remember, this was Sam Worthington in 2010. So yeah, this was when Clash of the Titans was being released. So. This is post-Avatar. This is when people gave a fuck about Sam Worthington. <laughs> this is it's Avatar 2009, Terminator Salvation 2009, and Clash of the Titans 2010. That is the guy that they were looking for. When they pushed it back to much later, um, Luke Evans replaced Worthington in 2013. And that's when they got Sarah Gaddon and Dominic Cooper. Affordable actors. Yeah, that were in England or in or Northern Ireland or wherever. Well, Luke Evans is Welsh, but you know it's that general, like British, European kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't think they were really that specific. But I think the problem here is that you know you can, everyone now needs their distinguishable franchise. You know they need the thing that they can brand not just as an epic extended universe in the vein of Marvel or DC, but also something that is of a specific kind of iconography that is tied to their studio and their studio alone. You know, for the longest time, the only studio that really had that claim was Disney. Because, you know, Disney isn't just about movies, it's basically a lifestyle. But now you've got, well, Disney now technically own Marvel and Star Wars, but if we look at Marvel as its own separate wing, you know, that is a finely tuned machine of creating this 
immense universe of films that tie together, which is hugely ambitious, if not necessarily for me. I, I'm, I have major Marvel fatigue. But now everyone wants to copy that format. Some are doing it Actually, I don't think anyone's doing it well, to be honest. I mean, DC are a mess right now. But I mean, the, the entire DC expanded universe was started on the shakiest of foundations. Um, you know, which is what happens when you like Zack Snyder. You know, Snyder all over your universe. Hey, maybe don't let one guy completely define the style and tone of your multi-billion dollar franchise. Just a thought. But now that's the thing, is everyone's doing that. And it's not like Universal doesn't have other ways to do it. Remember, Universal owned the Fast and the Furious franchise, which is one of the most profitable franchises on the planet. The eighth one, I mean, it is the kind, it is guaranteed to make money and not just make money, but make vast amounts of money on the international market, particularly China, which is really the crucial market right now. But it's also something that is relatively culturally universal, which is people really like to watch car chases. Pretty people in car chases, you know, with your nice, uh, relatively inclusive cast. So I can understand why, but I also understand why Universal would want to do this with the Monsters franchise. Remember, the Monsters franchise was what made them. You know, it was the the, the defining feature of their um, studio in the Golden Age. It was Bela Lugosi's Dracula and Boris Karloff's Frankenstein and the many faces of Lon Chaney and, you know, that entire period from about the original Phantom of the Opera to Creature from the Black Lagoon was defining for them and it's, it's incredibly iconic and to this day it is still something that is associated with Universal even though, frankly, attempts to kind of keep it going have been pretty miserable failures. I mean, The Mummy is a really fun movie, the Stephen Summers version, but, you know, the, the, the sequels had diminishing returns and it was clear that in a new model, it is not enough to be a trilogy of contained films. You have to expand into every other film. You've got it all tied together. So they obviously couldn't do that with that. But now everyone wants to establish a universe because it's a way to not just have a successful series, it's a way to have a, you know five or six successful series. But not everyone has you know, the rights to a, a, a universe that would organically move into an expanded universe. Like, it works for Marvel, it should work for DC, not under the current idiots running it, but it should work for DC. And it'll work for Star Wars. Two of those things are owned by Disney. You see the problem? What else is there that you can you can make? So you either delve back into the public domain, or you go way back into your own history. And that's clearly what Universal have done, and have been trying to do for a while, because not only did they have The Mummy, they had uh, the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing movie, which we've talked about before on this show. That was It was supposed to be uh, you know the Kickstarter for... Maybe not what we would call an expanded universe now, but certainly its own series. You know, he wouldn't just fight, you know, vampires. He would probably go off and, you know, there would probably be an episode of or a film where he met, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon or he had to fight the Invisible Man or, you know, maybe even Phantom of the Opera, stuff like that. It would be Van Helsing versus. Basically, it would have been the, the Sharknado of its day. I'm just imagining it. With a different Australian, it's been Helsing fighting around the world. <laughs> well, funny, funny you should mention that particular Australian. We'll get to him later. Um, Van Helsing, not a huge um, hit. It's not even necessarily about the money it makes. It's about the enthusiasm it encourages. Um, and, you know, we like we like Van Helsing, but it wasn't something that people were rushing out to, to see again. So... 
that's scrapped. And the same thing happens with Dracula Untold. Regardless of how much effort they put into trying to make it the beginning of a franchise, they didn't put that much effort in at all. But no one was really, you know, no one was writing, no one was writing fan fiction <laughs> about this. No one was, you know, making Tumblr fan mixes about it or anything like that. Maybe there were, but they certainly weren't making the numbers that they needed to. And f- importantly, the the, for- the foreign market didn't give a fuck. I'm looking up Dracula Untold. Uh, Fifty three works in Dracula Untold, and one of the, the first one that comes up is a crossover between Fast and the Furious. Sure, why not? But that's the problem with the the Dracula Untold movie. There's no enthusiasm for it, but obviously because no one really cared about it, and obviously because it wasn't a... Like, it didn't necessarily... I mean, obviously it's intended to start off this universe, but it wasn't so inextricably tied to the foundations of the universe that you couldn't just pretend it didn't exist. Which is what they're doing. So now we're getting this attempt at a Universal Monsters series that will be kickstarting this June, I believe, with a new version of The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. Hopefully there'll be music in it this time. <laughs> you haven't, like, if you can find the weird IMAX trailer that has no music or sound effects beyond Tom Cruise screaming, it is the funniest thing. <laughs> and then you go off and find the version where people have put music in it. I wonder if somebody's put Everybody Wants to Rule the World is it, in it because they oh, all, because, so you know, standard trailer music and all that. But uh, with The Mummy, there is a much more obvious attempt to start an Avenger-style franchise because not only do we have um, Tom Cruise playing this character, who at one time was called Colt, but I believe they've now changed it. He's called Nick Morton, which we're going to find out he's probably not that person. Uh, my money is betting on him being Van Helsing, to be honest. But we also feature Russell Crowe as Dr. Henry Jekyll. Which, like, almost feels like an in-joke to be casting Russell Crowe in that role, to be honest. So we also get Sophia Boutella as the new mummy, which looks not great in the trailer. She's a very good actress. I like her an awful lot in Star Trek Beyond, but this is one of those things where I feel like a bunch of guys sat around in their circle going, yeah, and what if the mummy was a chick? Awesome. Yeah, I'm just imagining like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, we've just got, we've just found a sexy female mummy. And it's like this woman in her 40s and she's just like, you know, going about her business. She's not, you know, 20 and perfectly sexy. She's like, I was kind of busy ruling the country to, you know, be hot and sexy. I was trying to be the most masculine woman I could to really appease the men. This is a very Hollywood problem. You know, Sophia Butella, who I I don't dis, you know, I don't want to disparage her because she, you know, she has, has to work in this system and she has been very good in the past. Um but, you know, Tom Cruise gets to be in his 50s. He gets to look very uh, refreshed and smooth-faced in his 50s, but that's none of my business. But Sophia Boutel and the other female lead of the movie, Annabelle Wallace, they've got to be a couple decades younger at least. Annabelle Wallace is 32. That's what Tom loves about um, female movie leads. He keeps getting older. They stay the same age. Yeah, pretty much. What's also noticeable about... Um, this expanded universe attempt that they're doing. So I actually wrote a post on this for ScreenRant.com if you're interested. But if you look at the fe- the, the release dates, <laughs> but look at the release dates. They've got 2017 for The Mummy and then they've got untitled film for both 2018 and 2019. We don't know what those are. 
We don't know who's directing them. We don't know who's writing them. We don't know what the plot or the characters of those stories are. But they've got a release date. How do you create enthusiasm for something when no one actually knows what the fuck it is? But then you have, you know, untitled Invisible Man film, untitled Wolfman film, all of these things. that they are. These have been in the works for close to seven or eight years now. So you've heard, you know, Javier Bardem is supposed to be Frankenstein's monster, but that rumour came out, you know, years ago and we've heard nothing from it since. Uh, Wife Beating Hat Man is supposed to play the Invisible Man, but once again, we haven't heard anything about that for years. Wife <laughs> Beating Hat Man! Well, did I lie? Did you come up with that? I feel like everyone just calls him Hat Man, don't they? <laughs> Wife Beating Hat Man. So, that's a problem that we see recurring. Yeah, so, like, look at the film that actually has a date, the April 13, 2018, and then the February 15, 2019. Untitled film, director, to be announced, screenwriters, to be announced, producers, to be announced. I mean, I'm going to assume that the producers are Kurtzman and Orky, but... Are they going to just randomly assign one of the ones that they've got as an untitled Invisible Man, whatever, and they just slot them into place? Do you want to notice how all of the screenwriters, producers, and directors on this are men? Yep. I mean, I'm not surprised, but, you know, come on. They couldn't even throw a bone and have a woman do Bride of Frankenstein? But this is also a major problem in terms of, look at those, you know, features. Other than Bride of Frankenstein, those are all about, you know, men. Oh, shit! Um, the guy who wrote The Mummy in the Van Helsing, he did. He he was the writer and executive producer on Passengers. Yes, I know. He got to write Doctor Strange as well. So how much do you not trust that fucker? Like, his first film was a Russian-American science fiction thriller, and then he got to co-write um, Prometheus. Because, you know, mediocre men get a really, you know, uh, upward-scale trajectory of their career in a way that women don't. See, at least um, David Kirk, Kirk, whatever the hell his name is, the guy Dick who's Kirk. doing um, Bride of Frankenstein, at least, quit. Okay, at least he has a really decent history behind him. Some of them are, are bombs, but hey, this is the guy who helped co-write uh, Jurassic Park, for example, with Michael Crichton. Well, at least Eric Heisserer, who's doing the Van Helsing movie with John Spates, at least he did Arrival, which is an awesome movie incredible script really beautiful piece of writing um but that's the problem this is like most of hollywood it's a world that's going to be completely defined by men probably for men with characters who are almost exclusively male i assume that if the mummy is successful we will see sophia butella return but you know the other women in that film so annabelle wallace she's going to be disposable you're going to see the you know the spunky female love interest probably in all of these films you're probably going to see a lot of these women get killed off like if there is a frankenstein movie that movie is almost guaranteed to follow the book and the aspect of how the women are treated in that you know the two main women in that story are killed i hope the um bride of frankenstein movie has a spunky female love interest for bride of frankenstein yeah I, i'll take that i would watch that i feel like angelina julie if she is still doing this movie would love that too in the um, the Andy Warhol flesh for Frankenstein movie, uh, I, it's hinted that the uh, one of the creatures that is made by Frankenstein is made from parts of a gay man, which is why he will not have sex with the woman that's been made for him. <laughs> there is precedence. And not the whole, I don't have sex with corpses. Mm, that whole thing, yeah. 
So that's the main problem with this scene, trying to establish an expanded universe. So this is the problem as well, and I, when I wrote about this for Screen Rant, I looked at an interview that um, Alex Kurtzman, the director of The Mummy, gave where he talked about establishing this universe, and basically he admitted they've no idea how they're going to completely wrap it up. Isn't that kind of a problem? Because at least with, you know, the Avengers, you've got decades of canon to go from. Yeah, but at least in the original um, Universal series, they did occasionally do crossovers and things. Um, the most famous examples were the Abbott and Costello movies. Abbott and Costello were this, you know, double act in the um, the like the forties and fifties of comedy, and then these stories like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy. It was basically like a a comedy pastiche of its time. So I doubt they're going to be going that route. But also, apparently, the original canon of the Universal Monsters is supposed to tie into this canon. Which to me just seems impossible. Okay, here's a line. So this Van Helsing movie that they're making, this Van Helsing movie that they're making, which is totally going to be about Tom Cruise, I'm telling you, Eric Heiser and John Spates had it was apparently said that the movie was going to draw inspiration from uh, George Miller's Mad Max series, but it's going to be set in the present day. I assume not. I assume not in the sense of having a, a, a well-developed female co-protagonist it wouldn't be anywhere near that good i mean listen a lot of this is speculation like there's no guarantee that any of these movies are even going to happen if the mummy doesn't make movies these aren't going to happen in the way that they want them to they will probably keep trying to reboot it in different ways like if the mummy fails they will try and use um van helsing as their jumping off point if that fails they will go for you know they might try and do dracula again i assume at some point they're gonna try and do dracula again surely I mean, if you're gonna bring in Van Helsing, yeah, yeah, you can't do Universal Monsters without Dracula. It's like we're gonna form a Justice League movie, but there's not going to be any Superman or Batman. Well, I guess it's just as well that they're scrapping Dracula and told because they explicitly set him up as a not maybe a hero, but certainly a you know sympathetic anti-hero. I imagine they were going to have the we are two opposite sides of the thing. We don't really know that the other guy is also a good guy and we're going to end up fighting and then it turns out we're actually on the same side and there's a third enemy that we actually need to fight. So you're saying there's going to be a moment where Dracula goes, Marfa! No. Van Helsing's wife in the uh, insane asylum is going to be called Mina. Oh yeah. I gotta save Mina! (laughs) Oh my god, I know a woman called Mina too. We should be friends! Like, this is going to be a mess, right? Does anyone have any hope that this is going to be good? No. I don't think even the people making it expect it to be good. They expect money. But that's the problem, is you can't build this kind of major universe franchise on that sole intention. You have to make good movies, too, that people care about. I mean, look at, you know, Iron Man... Is, is not as good as some of the other Marvel movies, but it's clearly something that stands on its own two feet. So even if you don't see the end of that movie with the when Nick Fury turns up, that, that's a movie that still stands on its own. And you can say that about the next, you know, it's a lot of the phase one of the Marvel films before the Avengers even enters the equation. Even they had to get rid of, you know, Ed Norton as the Hulk when that film didn't do great. Yeah, they're strong enough to stand on their own and be their own things, you know that something's coming, but they're all strong launching points. Well, at least decently decent launching points. 
But the thing is, none of those characters were major. Like they weren't like this is, wasn't like the X Men that everyone sort of knew because of the 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 cartoon in the nineties. You know, this is the Catherine Nose theme songs um, episode. These were B list characters, and they've turned them into A list amazingness. And Doctor Strange. Um, <laughs> but this is just shitty. It's like we're going to make a jumping off point into a into a universe, except nobody seems to have told us that we're making a jumping off point into a universe. So we've got to shove in new bits. Except yet, even without, I imagine some of these reshoots, it still feels very much we're setting up a universe. Hmm. It's a, an entire origin story. And do you really have an origin story without any sequels or an expanded universe? No. I mean, it might be at least fun. But as someone who genuinely likes those movies of that era, you know, as creaky as a lot of them are now, they're they st- they still really watchable. There is still this incredible quality about them and to see horror of the golden age and what it evolved into and how it influenced decades of pop culture is really interesting to me. And it's so much more interesting than just action man Tom Cruise. You know, I've got Mission Impossible for that. So are we done talking about how bad this is as a universal monster movie and just how bad this whole thing is going? Because I think we should talk about the woman in the film. We have talked about her, haven't we? We know that she dies and she doesn't have much of a role. Are we going to get any more specific than that? No, because the movie doesn't. (laughs) So there's a pretty blonde woman and she dies. She's a nice wife and she's a nice mother and she seems to be pretty decent at sex, but then she dies and she's willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, but kind of, but not really. It's just really bad storytelling. And then she's reincarnated because that's not a story element we hate. With an interesting haircut. That's because it's modern. It's like, you know, the ultimate sacrifice is like, well, she's dying anyway. That's why she says to do it. Because she's, she's dying anyway, so... Yeah, but there's no, there's no sacrifice there then. There's no real tragedy. It's just kind of convenient. Okay, so if you were to try and save this film... <laughs> uh, so I think we both agree that this film is pretty much shit and I don't think it can be saved. But if you were to somehow try and take this basic thing and make it more interesting, what would you do? Well, for one, I'd hire a cinematographer that has more colours than free on his palette. Uh, Second of all, I would... (laughs) God, everything just looks so dull. Oh my god. No wonder this guy works with Michael Bay and Trevorrow. Second of all, I would actually give the women in this movie something to do. If you're going to, you know, set it as something reasonably tied to history, you should at least explore that history and culture more thoroughly. If you're going to put in Baba Yaga, commit to the Baba Yaga, because that would be really interesting. I would muddy the waters more with Dracula's uh, ethical quandaries, because I feel like they're trying too hard to make him a good guy when it's clear that it's much more complex than that. And they don't really seem willing to, to deal with that. So, you know, at least try. And I don't think that they do. Uh, for me, I try and give Marina something to do. The story seems to be about a guy taking on these amazing powers with a curse who try and protect his son. What if we went with the, the both parents went and made this deal and then it became a story about Dracula is, Dracula's obvious and 
eventual fall and whether or not does he drag his wife down with him. At least gives her some agency in protecting her son rather than go right into the next room and he doesn't. And hey, and then you got to see does she manage to resist the call of the blood? Does he end up killing her because she goes goes way too deep or and that's why he broods? The other thing I would suggest is bring in his actual brother. Bring in Radu the Beautiful. Because then you've got the conflict of not just the guy who wants to take your son, but your brother is his ally. Yeah, I'm surprised that they didn't use that. And then finished with um, Radu being defeated by Dracula, only to be turned into a vampire by Charles Dance himself. And there's your extended universe rivalry, not just between Master Vampire and Dracula, but again, that brother thing. Also, I would not include a whole bunch of white people painted brown. Yeah, that that's a given. <laughs> and I would film in Romania, or at least Hungary or Bulgaria. Somewhere in that region, rather than standard Northern Ireland, wherever. So then hopefully you'd at least have a whole bunch of extras who look Romanian or Hungarian, rather than standard Irish people. Not that I don't like standard Irish people, it's just, you're in the wrong film. This film is in the wrong film. <laughs> and I'm, I'm bored talking about it already. <laughs> I don't think this film could really be saved, but if you were to make a Dracula as Vlad the Impaler film, really actually mine his interesting history. You've got two sons taken as royal hostages, one of whom actually enjoys his time there, converts to Islam and everything. Doesn't everyone love a good brother versus brother battle film? You can make the sibling rivalry immortal. You know, commit to the history. Don't just cherry pick at the elements that feel best for your Hollywoodization. And then not even use the names. I mean, really. Yeah, I just, I, I don't even think it's necessarily that it's an irredeemable film. It's just why bother? Because none of these people want to bother. I would much rather just have a Dracula movie. If you look over even just his Wikipedia page, it talks about the, the Sultan Mehmed too. He launches a campaign against Walashia to replace Vlad with Vlad's younger brother, Radu. That could have been your conflict as well. Not just he wants to take your son, but he's planning on overthrowing you and installing your brother in his place. That gives you a really personal rivalry. That involves reading the Wikipedia page. No, that would have been, once again, say it with me, that would have been way too interesting. That would have been way too interesting. Yeah, the, the, just shove the whole thing in a box, never watch it again. And I don't think anyone else really did. Like, this movie doesn't really inspire people. It's not, It's vaguely paint by numbers, and that's about it. I'm done talking about this movie, I can't think of anything else. It's yeah. exhausted me. <laughs> nah. No, I'm done. Uh, I was done halfway through the film, and that's being generous. Mostly because I was going, I know that chick from somewhere. Where do I know her from? Then I looked her up, and it was Lucy from The Moth Diaries. Maybe in the next film she'll get to become a vampire. Have you noticed? You can't do just one vampire movie. You have to do, like, at least two. Every vampire, every vampire movie seems to have at least one person who's been in another vampire movie or will go on to be in another vampire movie. Which is at least interesting for us, if no one else. We're going to burn this film from our memory. 
so that's it. Thankfully, we will never have to watch Dracula Untold again. You can't make us. You can't make us. You can't make us. <laughs> Next month, we will be doing American Vampire by Scott Snyder. We will be reading the backstory of Skinner Sweet um, by Stephen King, but mostly to inform the main story by Scott Snyder. Uh, it's available from Vertigo. And I've read this before. I quite liked it. You've read it before? Hello? I have read it before. Yeah, I have. When I figured when it came out, actually, I bought each issue. <laughs> so we will see you next month with a American Vampire. Anything else you'd like to say besides burn Dracula Untold? Burn it, burn it to the ground. It's not even worthy of a burn. It's not even that bad. It's just, just leave it. Put it back in the cave and forget it was there. Leave it to play Temple Run in the Cave. I look forward to returning to better stories. So until then, we are available at bloodsuckingfeminist.com on Twitter as bloodsuckingfem. We are on Facebook and generally around the internet if you Google us. Uh, if you want to contact us directly, our email is fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G because we are terrible and like puns. So until then, get ready reading American Vampire and don't let the vampires bite unless that's your thing and don't make a deal with Charles Dance unless it's for a much, much better vampire movie than this. <laughs> <laughs>